Thank you for joining us for this episode of Fraud Talk. I'm Emily Primo, Associate Editor of Fraud Magazine, and I'm joined by Dennis Gentilin. Dennis is the founding director of Human Systems Advisory and early in his career was publicly named as a whistleblower in a Forex trading scandal, an incident that was the catalyst for his interest in human and organizational behavior. Dennis will be speaking at the ACFE's Fraud Conference in Sydney this September 23rd through the 25th. Thanks for joining us today, Dennis. Let's start at the beginning. You've had over 15 years of experience in the financial services industry, but early in your career, you were named as a whistleblower in a foreign exchange or also commonly known as Forex trading scandal. First, can you tell our listeners a little about the foreign exchange market and more specifically how Forex trading works? The foreign exchange market is one of the more deregulated markets. And as you know, there's regulation everywhere these days, but it's a relatively deregulated market. The majority of the flows, I suppose, are of two kinds. The first is companies that either export or import goods. So if I'm, for example, an Australian-based company and I want to import some product to sell it to customers domestically, um, that transaction might be dominated in US dollars, so I need to sell Australian dollars to buy those US dollars to purchase the good or if I'm a manufacturer and I'm exporting goods, I might receive US dollars for those goods and I have to translate those or sell those US dollars and then transfer them to Australian dollars. And the other flow is is investment flows. And this could be uh, mergers and acquisitions where a company acquires a company offshore and needs to buy the foreign currency to make that acquisition. Or it could be um, fund managers and pension funds, etc., who want to get an exposure to an offshore bond market or equity market and so they need to buy and sell foreign currency. So they're the major flows. And the products, the most simple product is what they call the spot foreign exchange market, and that's where currencies are exchanged for settlement in two days' time. And then you have derivatives, and derivatives can be as simple as a forward contract where the settlement date is a day, any day other than the spot date. Um, And you can also have options contracts where there's the obligation, you, you pay a premium to buy an option, to buy the right but not the obligations to buy or sell a foreign currency. Anybody can buy and sell foreign currencies, correct? It can be someone working in a bank. It can be your average trader who just wants to get into the foreign exchange market, correct? You're right. So anyone can set up an account. And typically the way the market works is that the banks operate in what they call the interbank market. And they're what they call the price makers. And if you're just a trader, so if you're one of these companies that's buying or selling goods or you're just a trader, um, you go to a price maker who will make you a price and you deal on that price. And then that price maker will go to the interbank market to hand that risk off to somebody else. Is a price maker the same or similar as a broker? Yeah, it's, it's sort of similar, although brokers typically, say we look at a, a share broker, can also you know offer advice, etc. The interbank market, they're, they're typically just there to make a price and clear the risk. So when, when you exchange, deal on a price that's provided to you by someone in the interbank market, you're essentially transferring risk from that you've got onto them, and then it's up to them what they do with that risk, whether they hold onto it on their own book, which you know, they've got risk limits and they're able to do that, or whether they go into the interbank market and sell that risk on to another party. That makes sense. So now that we kind of have the basic fundamentals, and I know that the foreign exchange market is much more complex than just these fundamentals, but for the sake of our listeners, we'll leave that there. And can you tell me now where you were working when you blew the whistle on a foreign exchange trading scandal and can you tell us a bit about what happened? 
Yes, so I was working um, on a derivative desk at one of Australia's major banks. It was uh, basically an options trading desk. And at the time I was based in London, so the foreign exchange market is a 24-hour market. And we were at, at one period operating out of Melbourne and, and running night shifts, but we decided to split the team, and so I was sent to London. And essentially there was a group of traders that were using a variety of means to conceal losses. And I was aware that there was wrongdoing occurring on the desk, I'd actually made an attempt 11 months prior to the losses becoming public to raise some concerns and, and you know, with, with hindsight I look back on that effort and I was probably as much to blame as the person I delivered the message to for why that didn't go further at the time. But the way that I found out how significant it was is I essentially had a pitted exchange um, with one of the senior traders I was working with and I got the sense that he was struggling with it because he basically let me know how significant the losses were. I mean, at, and at, at that point, I was in a situation where I needed to do something. You mentioned that there were a few people that were hiding losses. How does a trader go in a bank go about hiding losses from their trades? Yeah, it's a good question, and there's not one technique. So I think if you look at any of these so-called rogue trading scandals, there's not one technique that they use. But essentially what they all have in common is they find some sort of shortcoming within the operational systems and, and circumvent those. And so what happened at the National Australia Bank was there was what we call a, a trading system where the trades were booked, and that system was used to track the position but also to book um, the profit and loss for the day, and then that trade and that um, trading system interface with an opera or a back office operation system, where which is where the transactions were settled. And there was a a window, is what they called it, where there was around I suppose 30 minutes to an hour window before the trading system interfaced with the back office system. And when you're running an options portfolio, you have to run what they call a close of day on your portfolio every day because the options change in value every day. And so what these traders were doing was entering an either a, a trade with a with the wrong rate or a, or a fictitious trade that didn't exist just before they ran close of day. They then ran close of day with that trade in the system and the profit for that day was booked to the statutory profits from the trading system. And then once close of day was run, they'd remove the fictitious trade or they'd change the, the wrong rate on the trade prior to that trade interfacing with the back office system. So they took advantage of that sort of 30-minute to 45-minute window between when a trade was booked into the trading system and it then interfaced with the operation system where the trade was then reconciled and confirmed. Has that window since been closed at this bank? I'm assuming that right there is something they can tighten up to avoid similar instances like this in the future or is it kind of necessary for some reason? Oh no, absolutely. So once the um, you know, once the losses were exposed, there was obviously a very, very significant investigation. Um, you know, the regulators were involved and, and it's a classic case that once once any organization suffers um, some sort of failure like this, they really, you know, go through the organisation with a fine-tooth comb and find shortcomings in all their processes and procedures and systems. And it's something that, you know, I, I find interesting in, in my work that I, I call these the, the formal systems of governance and they're important and, and we need to make them as tight as possible but no formal system is going to be foolproof. Any individual if they really want to can find ways and means to circumvent the formal systems. It doesn't mean we don't try to make them as foolproof as possible. Sure. Um, but we need to understand that there's always going to be gaps there somewhere. I've read about some 
trading scandals in my time. And here at the ACFE, we're interested in looking at why people do what they do. We have our fraud triangle, which says most crimes are committed when there's an opportunity, pressure, and rationalization. And I've read some trading scandals where the the fraudster becomes greedy and then sees an opportunity like your governance example, this win, this 30 minute window that needed to be tightened up and then they rationalize it in some way. But what I'm wondering in this case with these traders, how do they go about hiding such huge losses? Because from what I understand, it was in the millions. And I can only imagine that they were over leveraging at this point to create such losses. What you said there about the fraud it's a really neat way of, of summarising how people engage in wrongdoing. So, yeah, there is an opportunity. They're, they're under pressure to deliver outcomes or results or, you know, they fear losing their job, etc. and they manage to rationalise the conduct. That's quite a neat way of summarising it. And if you look at all trading scandals or ethical failures, there's themes in that in all of them. And so what happened in this instance is initially my understanding is that the discovery of that window was just by accident. And, and I think what happened was that a trader put in a deal at the wrong rate. It was a, just an honest mistake. That was towards the end of the day. The profit was, was run for the day. Um, and then a phone call was received from the operations area, you know, a couple of hours later saying that the rate's incorrect. And then when they rectified that rate, the profit that was in that deal was carried through to the next day. And, and that's what, you know, the, the opportunity part in the fraud triangle. So that's where these traders saw that that's, that's a, a technique that they could use to what the word they started using was smooth on the profit and loss account. And um, it's one of these words, I think the famous psychologist Albert Bandura came up with this concept of euphemistic labelling, which is whenever we engage in poor behaviour, we, we tend to use words which sanitise it and, and make it sound as if it's not as bad as it is. And, and so the word smoothing was used to describe this technique where you change rates on trades to smooth the profit and loss. And then, yeah, and then it's the slippery slope where they started doing it and perhaps in the early days it was used as a technique to genuinely take out the peaks and troughs in the profit and loss. And I'm not justifying that, but perhaps it was. And then over time, losses started accumulating and, you know, you get yourself to a point where you've rationalised it so much that the next thing you know, what was a technique used to smooth the P&L has become a technique to hide significant losses. They were using other techniques as well, which, you know, were... There were, there were fictitious trades and all sorts of things when it just got out of control because it spun out of control really quickly. It was really in the last three months where the losses really grew from, I think, something like 30, and 30 to 40 million to at the end 360 million. Would that be in part maybe because as the losses accumulated, they started making bigger trades and the hopes that the profits from those would compensate for the losses that they made, which in turn just ended up making bigger losses? You're spot on, exactly right. So as the losses accumulate, you need to take bigger and bigger positions to try and recoup those losses. And, and so you're right, you know, what you said before, your leverage increases. Not only will things recuperate if they go well, but your losses just accumulate at a far higher rate um, if the market moves against you. So to go back a little bit to your initial discovery of uh, these losses, you mentioned that you feel like you were as much to blame for it not going further at first, 11 months before it did. 
So when you learned about these losses being covered up, what was your initial reaction? Were you concerned about your own job security if you brought your findings to others? And why did it maybe not move up the chain so quickly and 11 months ended up going by? I look back and think the way that I expressed my concerns at that point, if you look at all the things that someone should do when they raise concerns of this nature, so things like documenting the evidence, writing a a journal or a diary note, going to the person and making sure that you hold them accountable for taking some actions, all those things which now appear common sense to me, I just didn't do. And I I didn't do them because I was just young and naive and, and, and and quite silly to be totally honest. I spent then the next 11 months turning a blind eye to and avoiding it as much as I possibly could. That's how I tried to justify, I suppose, remaining on the trading desk. And at the time when I was told by the senior trader how significant the losses were, I actually, my first reaction was I'll just resign. Um, you know, this has got nothing to do with me. I'll just walk into work and resign. And it was only after I entered into conversations with my better half, my wife, and, and it was actually also for the first time I opened up to someone outside of my trading desk. It was the first time I spoke to someone in the organisation who wasn't in the trading desk. And it was one of those pivotal moments in my life because I remember saying to him that, that, you know, there's stuff going on and I don't know what to do. And that was the honest truth. I really didn't know what to do, who to go to. You know, I'd already raised concerns earlier. There was no, at the time, there was no whistleblowing program at the institution. And he gave me the confidence to go again. And if nothing was done, I knew I had someone backing me. And and that's really what gave me the confidence to go again and, and, and raise my concerns. After you raised your concerns, these traders were brought to task as a result of your whistleblowing. Were there other whistleblowers that came forward with you? Yeah, that's a a really good point you make there, Emily, because especially amongst the media, they get caught up on this concept of a lone wolf whistleblower, and it's hardly ever the case. You know, I'm, I'm very careful not to mention their names because most whistleblowers, they want to just get on with their lives and, and you know, not let this, you know, carry this story with them. But at the time, there was, you know, two others. One in particular, there was one lady in particular. She was the one who went into the system and, and uncovered the majority of the losses because when I went into the system, I could only find approximately $40 million of the losses and she was the one who cracked the code, so to speak, and, and went in there and found the majority of the losses. It definitely wasn't me acting alone. Fortunately for me, of the three, I managed to remain at the organisation and spent another 12 years there. So that is, I suppose, a good news story when you hear a lot um, of bad news stories out there about whistleblowers. Your experience as a whistleblower definitely turned out more positively than a lot of the whistleblowers we talked to. We've had instances of threats on life and pushed out of jobs, health deterioration. What steps do you think organizations based on this, you having a good experience and other whistleblowers not, what steps do you think organizations or society in general needs to take in order to provide more support to whistleblowers? All organizations need to have in place good formal whistleblowing systems. So, you know, whistleblowing hotlines, independent investigations, processes on how they protect the anonymity of the whistleblower, et cetera, et cetera. That's that's absolutely important. But also what's really important is what I call the informal systems or the culture. And that is, you know, are we doing our best to create an environment within the organisation where we encourage people to speak up and raise concerns? When when people do speak up, do we listen to them and treat them with respect and and, and take their concerns seriously? Do we we celebrate speaking up? You know, how do our leaders respond? 
respond to challenge? Do they get defensive or do they embrace feedback and take it on board? And, and I think organisations who really want to look after people who speak up and whistleblowers have to work on both those, both the formal and informal systems. The informal systems are difficult to work on. You've really got to use different diagnostic techniques to find out where there might be issues in the organisations and concerns around speaking up. And when you identify those, how, how do you go about addressing them? And that can mean a whole variety of things from training, especially training leaders on, on creating environments where people feel comfortable speaking up and at times it might be the case that you might need to move leaders on because they're not, they're not capable of creating that environment where people feel comfortable speaking up. You focus a lot now on how important it is for organizations, leaders to step up as ethical examples like you just mentioned. Have you seen any examples recently of leaders or organizations that are really excelling at setting that ethical tone? And are there any standout cases recently of failures maybe in that realm? It's, it's a great point you make because um, it's something we don't do enough of and that is celebrate examples of good ethics and, and good conduct within organisations. We tend to have a tendency, I suppose, as humans to focus on the negative and, and there's a lot of <laughs> negative going around. There's a group in the US actually that's based in the Stern School called Ethical Systems and if you or your listeners haven't gone to their website, ethicalsystems.org, I, I you know, encourage you to do it. It's a treasure trove of information, but they've done a few company snapshots. From the top of my head, I think it's Patagonia, Costco and Container Store are the three companies and and they sort of use these case studies as examples of good ethics and they're worth reading these three case studies because what what they tend to have in common is all companies have a set of values that are articulated but they're not just writing on the walls. You can just through the case studies, the stories that are told in the organisations which show how these values come to life. And I think, I think with Container Store, it was how much they invested in their employees' development and wellbeing. I think with Patagonia, it was how much effort they put into, given they've got such a huge focus on sustainability, telling their customers you know, how, how, how garments were made and that we don't want you to buy things that you really don't need, which is extraordinary for a retail store. Um, I think Costco, there was a big focus on keeping prices. I think there was a story about that the price of um, a hot dog and a drink has been $1.50 for the past 20 years and has never changed. So those case studies illustrate that organisations, and once again this comes back to that informal and formal systems, yes you do need to have good formal systems, good policies, processes and procedures, but your informal systems you need to articulate a set of values and principles and then you need to you know, live and breathe those through the organisation and I think that comes through in these three case studies. And as far as bad examples, well, there's, you know, many of those going around and in Australia at the moment, I'm not sure if your listeners are aware, but there's currently an inquiry going on into our banking system, so there's been repeated ethical failures, uh, systemic, you know, ethical issues in our banking system from customers being charged fees and not receiving any services to you know, really dodgy insurance plans to um, rate fixing within financial markets, etc., etc. So the government's hand was forced late last year in a court and inquiry, and these hearings are ongoing, and it's creating a real stir in Australia and is front page news at the moment. There seems to be a real spotlight on banking systems, not just in Australia, but in the rest of the world too. If you look back in the past couple of years, over here with Wells Fargo. It'll be interesting to see how they all kind of shape up in the next few years and hopefully take on some of these ideals that you mentioned just a second ago. And it's like anything with these systems that incubate 
and promote ethical failure. There's not one thing you can point to which is the cause. There's a whole variety of causes. Generally speaking, I think banking lost its way where you know, a lot of people say that they put the shareholder first. I think it went beyond that. I think the, the managers and the employees within banks put themselves first and you know, the incentive schemes within the institutions created such enormous conflicts of interest. You know, they, they were in positions where they just they were dealing with clients and they really couldn't put the client's interest first because um, there were such significant incentives to do otherwise. I think there's a bit of work to do in that industry to promote the right conduct. And while we're on the topic, you mentioned the ethical failures within the banking industry. What are some other challenges do you think banks or the financial industry in general are facing right now in preventing or investigating fraud? The themes that are coming out from the inquiry that's ongoing in Australia, I think, first of all, there seems to be a lax attitude towards the law. Our corporate regulator in Australia, the way that we regulate companies in Australia is very different to the US. So those big fines and penalties that get handed down in the US for corporate wrongdoing don't exist in Australia. And that's a theme that's coming through the inquiry, that there doesn't seem to be enough consequence for wrongdoing. So that's one one of the themes that I'm sure will be addressed. The a big focus, I think, coming out of this inquiry, and these are themes that will be common in America as well, around conflicts of interest and especially the incentive schemes within these institutions and the conflicts they create. And, and like I said, the, the research demonstrates this as well, that conflicts of interest are so difficult to overcome and when there is as significant as those that exist within the financial services industry, then it's very difficult for someone to you know, put customer and community ahead of their own or their organisation's interests. And so there'll be a big focus on the conflicts of interest. And you know, I, I think it really comes down to institutions really reorientating themselves and, and really focusing hard on trying to put their customers ahead of their own interests and sometimes their shareholders' interests, which is always difficult to do for publicly listed companies. And, and that sort of a change and transformation is going to take a long time, I think, to play out in the industry. Okay. And so to finish us out, can you tell us a little bit about what you do now as the founding director of Human Systems Advisory? So it's a firm I recently um, found. So I left the National Australia Bank in 2016 and and founded this firm. So it's really just a little startup consulting firm. Like I said, I've, I've tried to focus as much as possible on the informal systems and, and I always make the point, it's not, that doesn't mean that formal systems aren't important, they're crucially important, but we need to focus our attention on both. It, it ranges from doing diagnostics to organisations, so you know, trying to figure out are our leaders, not just at the board and executive level but across the organisation, are they role models for our values and, and principles? Is this an environment where people feel comfortable speaking up? Is it an environment where we have this concept of organisational justice, where if, if things go wrong, people feel that people are held accountable for behaving in ways which compromise our values and principles? And then once you've ascertained where issues are, how can you work with organisations to try and address those? Um, I particularly focus, given my background, I particularly focus on creating environments where people feel comfortable speaking up. I, I've um, done a bit of work with Mary Gentile, who's probably familiar to some of your listeners. She's a professor of practice at the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia and the founder of Giving Voice to Values. So we've developed a, a program of work where we try and, and help people when they see conduct, like I said, that compromises the organisations and values and principles. It's not just a matter of identifying it and recognising it's wrong, 
but then how, what are you going to do about it? Who are you going to speak to? What are you going to say? How are you going to approach them? And what's the outcome you want? What sort of pushback are you expecting? How are you going to overcome that pushback? And so we develop workshops and programs where we get people to actually practice um, how they'll respond. And the thinking is that the only way you get better at dealing with these kinds of scenarios in the workplace is if you practice them in training and in the classroom. It's, it's an adage which I suppose organisations like the Army have known for a long time. You know, the reason that soldiers are good in battle is because in practice they try as much as possible to create, you know, similar scenarios in training. It's obviously not possible to do that. You'll never recreate what happens in the workplace in a classroom. But if we can try and practice these skills, we'll be better equipped to deal with these types of situations when we do encounter them in the workplace. That sounds like great work. Yeah, it is. It's great. It's challenging. One of the big challenges is finding organisations that are really serious about this. Believe it or not, the, the first step is actually encouraging or getting organisations comfortable with a diagnostic because it can be quite challenging and threatening for some executives and even board members to really do good diagnostics and find out there are significant issues in their organisation. Once you've done that, then you know figuring out how to address them and doing it in a way where you can prove you're making progress um, can be very fulfilling. Great. Well, that's all I've got for you. Thank you so much again for, for talking with me today. No, thank you, Emily. I really appreciate it. And um, I think I'm speaking at the conference in September, a um, ACFE conference in Sydney. So I'm very much looking forward to it. This has been another episode of Fraud Talk. To find all of our episodes, visit acfe.com slash podcast, the iTunes store, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Emily Primo, signing off.